Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Otonia Okot-Bitek. Otonia's book, A is for Acholi, won the 2023 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. On this episode, Otonia talks about how she addressed Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness in the book, the magic she finds in writing, and she talks about what she calls mullet poems. Otonia starts our conversation with a reading from A is for Acholi. I think what I'm going to do is read a poem called A Dictionary for Unsettling. And this poem is how I I most feel like right now. A Dictionary for Unsettling. So now, I reckless, I damned, I candid, I salt, I tempered, I soft, I terrified, I terrified, I terrified. They say, do you want dead yet? I terrified that. That might also be true. So I reckless now, I given up, I sullied, I done. They said you were on the way back. I terrified. You banded, you toughness, you vented, you fought, you kicked, you beat, you shouted, you lied. And now I terrified that you're here. I terrified that you're here. And I terrified that you're here for good. So I reckless now painting my nails only up to three in the afternoon. I doting on cats. I watchful for new news. I watchful for the bizarre, the whispered, the curse. I dried hard. I cracked. I happened only in the shutter. Oh, gather. Oh, lean in. Listen, listen. These are only moments stacked up against a top beside each other. Moments beaded like necklaces. Moments incremental, incidental, instrumental, sometimes dire, sometimes dire because dream, because fate, because all gods pointed right and not left. Oh, gather and listen to this refuse, this stance, this rejection, this rant. Assemble now poets, now singers, now crowd in the chords and the lyrics in the back room where you stored the tune and rhythm. Assemble now poets and singers and drummers, Where are the dreams? Where is the tune and rhythm section? So reckless me, thrown, reckless me, down, reckless me, thrown to moments without you in the periphery, in the distance, or shadow, at my door. Reckless me, damned, reckless me, sinner. There was never anything else offered in the clamor. Thank you. All right, my first question for you. And sometimes it's the hardest one, is who are you? Sometimes I think I'm a person. Um, But sometimes I wonder if I am, because I live in so many spaces of misrecognition. And I wonder if it's about, I, I wonder if, what makes me a person is my interaction with other people or with a sense of myself of being in the world. Um, I think I'm a person. 
I'm also a poet and um, a poet in the sense that I obsess about the work of words and how we use them or how we don't and when we choose to use them and when we don't. That's what I'd say. It was a hard question. I know it is a hard question because easily we could all just read our bios, but that's sometimes we don't feel like that person that we wrote about in our bios. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, I, I, yeah, yeah. And to pick on those things, each one of them as you read them all is not who you are all the time, which is what you just said. And I thought, hmm, am I even a person? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let me let me just extend that a little bit. Okay. Um, in a, to be a person in my tradition, in a Choli tradition, is to be somebody who knows how to be in relation with others. So someone can be human but not a person, or someone can lose their personness because they have rejected ways of knowing how to be in relation with others. So if say you're um, mean or you um, you, you hurt people or you're greedy or, right? Those are not people activities. That's not what makes you a person. So to be a person or to claim to be a person is to be um, aware of your responsibilities to other people. So I guess that claim sometimes I think I'm a person is me um, striding between languages Um, but also in English, it's about the misrecognition as a person. Right? Yeah. yeah. This is me obsessing about one word already. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I interrupted you. <laughs> no, no, don't worry. I had the pleasure of spending the last few mornings with A's for Acholi, me and my coffee uh, and your words. And... I wondered if maybe we could start with you sharing a bit about how this collection started. Hmm. I think there's been many starts to this collection. Um, and there are many sets of poems in this collection that mix up A's for Acholi. And I think it's important to start by saying that the title was a brilliant idea by Canisia Lubrin, who edited it. Um, I had come to her or presented to her these, these poems with a completely different title. And she told me that that's not what the title of the book was, right? And so she helped me to, to see it and shape it into a, the, the collection that it is. Because, um, for example, there's some poems um, which are, I already forgot, oh my goodness. Um, there's some poems, the lock poems, Right, there's a series of poems. I think there's about ten of them, and I wrote those when I was at a residency at um, Capilano University, a writing residency there. Um, and I didn't think of, I thought of them as a separate uh, piece of work. And then there was some poems, which are a series of poems called "There's Something About." I had about six of them, and I thought I was going to start writing a book about "There's Something About." Each poem would be right. Um, and then I got tired of that, so I put those aside, right? Uh, and, and then some of these poems, like Jacob's Breath, which is the last poem in the book, well, one of the last poems in the book, was, a, was 
was about, you know, noticing, using poetry to write about the moment, whatever the moment was. And I've been thinking about uh, the work of poetry in witnessing and how do we witness our everyday um, and mark it. And so that's what I was doing when I was writing things like uh, a poem like Jacob's Breath. Um, and so when these came together at Canisia's desk, she asked me a series of questions which I had never been asked before about my own work, which helped me then to think about how this could be a coherent collection. And so beginning with the poem A's for Acholi, which then is, is sort of, a, I guess in academic speak, we call it my positioning, right? right? who I am, where I am from, and, and that kind of thing. So that I begin with my position as an actually person, and then the rest of the poems seem to make sense. But it couldn't have if it didn't go through Canisius' desk. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting to me that they, that, you know, you had all these starts and that you had all these ideas because in reading them, and maybe it's Canisius' thoughtful eye, but it seems like there were just so many beautiful connections between the poems like one that I noted was around maps and cartography that comes up throughout several of the poems mm -hmm. um could you talk a little bit about why you were so struck by those ideas of maps and cartography and maybe why they were appearing for you in your work at the time mm, yeah, that's a great question um maps first first in primary school I really wanted to be a geographer. I thought if there's something like being a geographer, I'll do it. I loved maps. I loved looking at maps and, and figuring out places in relation to each other. But as I grew up, I realized I have no sense of direction whatsoever. <laughs> so it's funny to me that I wanted to be a geographer. Um, and I thought being a geographer meant looking at maps and making maps, right? Um, and then uh, as a young person, I read a, a book called um, Heart of Darkness. And it's a book, a novel that's mostly read in first year of university literature, literature class or something like that. But some people go on to read it uh, in, in grad school and, and beyond. And it's a novel written by uh, a Polish immigrant to um, England in the early 20th century or late 19th century. And it's about um, uh, a man who goes to the Congo, present day Congo, to look for another European man who's gotten lost, gotten lost in quotation marks, right? Um, and, and so the novel goes through uh, time and space. So you, it's really a mapping that is done through this narrative and, and there's no um, differentiating between the story and the place. And I was really struck by that novel because for many reasons, but one of it was because where you're from matters in a story and also in the presence of a story. So, those of us who are reading that novel in a class who are from East Africa, Central Africa, will be mapped differently and will map themselves differently than those who are not from that part of the world. 
So it seems to me that there's a very, very strong uh, connection between mapping, being mapped, and storytelling. And I think I've been thinking about that for a long time. And uh, I spent a few pages on, in this book uh, writing a response to Heart of Darkness, because in that novel, um, Conrad writes um, the African woman as somebody who has only angry words and also does not speak except for uttering angry words, right? Um, and given that the image of the angry black woman is still so pervasive, it struck me and it continues to strike me about the power of a story that was written a long, long time ago by somebody who's not even, say, okay, he, he's, he's now an iconic British writer, right? But he was a Polish immigrant who went to Britain and he understood what it meant to be from elsewhere. And then he's also writing about people from elsewhere, but it didn't occur to him, or maybe it did, that it's important to write people truly. But he wrote, because he writes other other characters in that novel, he takes time to flesh out some people, and he takes and he does not take that time for other people too, and other people, black people, right? It's specifically the black woman. So I thought, ah oh, man, let me tell you in your language, English, <laughs> how I might have responded if you were talking about me, and you were talking about me. So. That's, so that's the connection between maps and, and obsession about maps. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so interesting how, you know, that that novel still, like I, I read it when I was in, actually I read it in history. I think it was a first year history class that I read that mm, book. That's, um, that's, but it yeah. still kind of is like so part of the canon. And um, I mean, I think now, thankfully, because of work like yours and I, we are starting to look at it more critically, but it's, I think it still fits with so much of the writing that is done where white authors are writing about other um, people, other cultures that aren't their own, and they're not that engaging with who another person truly is, not just in contrast to other white characters. I, it's It still continues uh, to this day, and didn't start with Conrad. He was just part of one of many at the time. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. And I also want to say what I haven't said so far, that it's a colonial story. And it's it's one of uh, a big, I guess, the project, the huge project of colonialism is not just about extraction and not just about... Um, um, dispossession of land and, and, and people, but it's also about storytelling. Who tells the story about who? And I think um, we should keep our finger on that storytelling as a powerful medium for colonialists and everybody else too. Everybody understands that who tells the story um, takes charge of the situation, right? So it's important to keep reading stories like Heart of Darkness, but also read them in context with other voices. Yeah. 
Another uh, theme that I noticed through the book, and again, this might be, I know editors play such a strong hand in, in all of this, and uh, maybe Kinesia was was asking you about this, but we also see a lot of, especially in the A is for Acholi, we see the apple and the Garden of Eden coming up. Um, but we also see God and angels um, repeating throughout many of the poems. What was it about these words and these themes that were kind of resonating with you? Okay, as uh, much as I'd like to credit Carnesia for <laughs> so much, she didn't do the writing. I did that. <laughs> well, I know so, sometimes people just ask, oh, like, have you noticed this? And then, you know, it, things kind of pull together. But I know you are, I could tell it, something was on your mind in all of this. I have all, uh, written about the relationship between um, religion and poetry and storytelling and identity and place and belonging in my other work as well. And I, and I think, no, I think I know in a hundred days, there's a lot of uh, references to the Bible. In, in that book, I was thinking about um, memory 20 years after a genocide, in particular the Rwanda genocide. So what is the role of memory? And, uh, and religion plays a big part in that because we are also thinking about what it means to forgive and what it means to forget and what it means to heal. And so many of us um, across the world are reliant on religion to guide us through tough times. And so for me, um, who grew up with a good colonial education, the Bible was an integral part of it. I also was brought up Catholic and then I went to an Anglican school, high school. So I'm quite familiar with the Bible and the power of the stories from the Bible. And so, for example, Adam and Eve, uh, which I write about in, in Ace for a Child, not, not the story, but the fact that my grandmother's brother was called, was named Adam, it's his first name. And for a, a while as a child, I thought my grandmother's brother was that first Adam. And so there was an unlocking that, you mean he was not the first man? Because I thought he was that old, right? <laughs> Could have been, right? And maybe he is, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know. These, these, you know, Lives are complicated. But also think about the power of naming, uh, not just for Adam, who was, in the, according to the Bible, given the job of naming anything and everything else. If that person who did all the naming in the world was your grandmother's brother, think about the proximity you'd have. <laughs> right? <laughs> to language and how language works. And so I, I take that claim too, because I'm, I'm one of the um, inheritors of that legacy of learning about Adam and even a particular kind of way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that part in the footnote where you you there's the moment where you thought he was too he was thought he was old enough to be Adam, but also he was too young. But you didn't that childlike mind that doesn't quite put those things together. Yeah. 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 And it's almost like, you know, when you're looking at a black and white striped garment. Yeah. Sometimes your eyes on the black, sometimes your eyes on the white. 
and sometimes at the same time, and then your brain does zzz, yeah. right? So Adam did that to me. Sometimes it's just zzz in my brain. He goes at the same time, the first man, and at the same time, my grandmother's brother, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the footnotes, and I just, mm. I found that, I mean, I, I want to delve into just using the page in general, but um, using the footnote as an extension of the poem and as a place to kind of tell another poem and to delve into different story and um, also to recognize those who have influenced you. We see Jordan Abel's name, of course, come up in one of the footnotes. Um, mm -hmm. What did that space open up for you, being able to use the footnote that way? Well, first, uh, well, not, not necessarily first, but be it's good enough to start with. I'm also an academic when I'm not a poet. And so the work of academia often requires that you, um, you be transparent about who are the foundations, foundational thinkers you're thinking with. And these often appear in the footnotes. Right? Sometimes notes to extend your thinking appear in the footnotes. So the footnotes have a particular work that they do in academic writing. But when I started to think about it in poetry and in A's for a Choli is not the first time I thought I used it. I used it um, properly in, in a chap that I'd written. So in that collection, I wanted to think about poems in the footnotes so that the footnote was not the place for the foundational work as usual in academia. Um, and and I, I talked about it as a mullet poem where it was business in the front, like the poem up front and the party in the footnotes, right? So I wanted all the fun and all the um, crafting to be in the footnote part of the poem. I also liked the idea that um, uh, if it's a short poem and I, my favorite poems are short poems because they pack a punch, right? that there's lots of white space. And in my head, if somebody had uh, a, a book where there's a short poem on top and then a, a short footnote that would leave lots of white space for whoever it was to write their own, it is for something, it is for whatever it is, right? So other people could also write their poems in that white space. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that idea. I, wa I wanted actually to, to talk more about white space because I write, non creative nonfiction and I was I'm teaching a class and I was I was talking about how much I just I love that poets explore how white space is is, is as important as the words we put on the page it, it serves its own purpose and uh oftentimes nonfiction writers we have to fill all the space <laughs> we don't right. many don't I mean of course this isn't true for everyone but it, the the convention is you put all the words on the page and and yes. no white space um, yeah, and I or, love how the white space is only in the margins. Exactly, or like if you do, there's a little white space for a transition or something. It's very mm -hmm. sparse. Mm -hmm. um, and I I loved in on the back of the book that when Chantelle Gibson comments that A is for artist and that the page became a canvas because mm -hmm. I think that's very true for for the work in this book and for so many other works that use white space. Um, but how do you? How do you approach white space in your work? Um, are you thinking always of how it's going to appear or is that something that comes together for you in revision? 
in revision. So I think there's two elements for me to in writing a poem. First, the poem itself, uh, the, the gift of it appears, right? Whether it's a voice or an idea or something. The, so it appears and um, it and, and it's a gift because it, it presents all kinds of possibilities. So when I first write a, a draft of a poem um, or what I'm calling a gift of a poem, I don't think of it as the end product. It's, it's very rare for that to happen. Um, uh, and then afterwards, I think, oh, how can this be on a page, right? Uh, and that's where all the playing begins and and how many words can I throw out right from the beginning, right? Because when I see a poem, I think already has too many words, right? <laughs> how can I? Yeah, yeah. But of course, like the poem I read first, there's lots of repetition and has a lot of words, right? So some poems uh, take up a lot of space on a page and some don't. But for sure, the editing part. And, and of course, after I work on it, it might be a second iteration or third iteration, different iterations, but those ones are now about crafting it to be on a page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As well as meaning, as well as sound, all of those other things too. Yeah. Yeah. I I and I love the the sound, like um, you know, in reading your work, because you are using repetition, it it does like well, I am reading the poems silently in my head I can hear how it sounds Mm -hmm. and um how do you strike the right balance of repetition in your poetry is that something you do through reading it aloud so you can hear how it flows well if I can't hear it it's not done yet and sometimes and and you saw it today I started to read the poem um and then I stumbled a bit then I had to start again right and sometimes I think, ah, I could have had one more iteration because I, I need for it to sound so clear that I don't ever stumble. And where I stumble is where I should go back and fix something, right? So um, hearing it, and not necessarily aloud, but hearing it is an important part of editing it. Yeah. Is it hard for you to know when a piece is done? Ah. Uh, I think that's the hard question. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a hard question because it's a question also about ego and the relationship between the poet and the poem. So I started by saying that these poems, uh, this book became a book after it had been through Canisius' desk. because of the guiding questions that she gave me, it helped me to see that what I had offered to her was, even though I had reworked so much of it, was still in process. And it wasn't just that I had to write a poem and work it until it was done. I also had to figure out which poem came before it and which one came after it. Right. So what kind of community does it create? Or does it stand on its own? If it stands on its own, why is it here? So that's why, for example, there's only three of those days something about poems, right? Not all of them, because just because you wrote a poem doesn't mean it has to be in the world. And so some of those will always remain unfinished somewhere, right? And, and I think that poems are more likely to be finished when they have been worked in community. 
So after someone else has read it or after you've heard it through somebody else's voice, then it helps you to see it differently, right? But um, if I was the kind of poet who was, uh, I wrote the poem, therefore I determine when it's done. <laughs> no, I, I'm sure there, there's people who have that kind of confidence in their work, but I, uh, I, I like to to include other people in the, in the in the work. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about um, literary connection and community. One of the things I love so much is uh, flipping to the back and seeing the community reflected in the acknowledgments. And, and uh, we see that in, in your book here. And I've, I've listened to you speak before. And so I know how community uh, is so important to your creative work. Um, but I wondered if you could share a bit more about how you engage with community and how that inspires you and how it keeps you going creatively. Well, these different communities that, that I hope that I acknowledge properly at the back of the book. And I was thinking about, well, there's the, the first obvious community are those, those who keep you whole. Those are your friends and your intimates and your, you know, um, your neighborhood, people who look out for you, right? They might not necessarily be involved in helping you write a poem, but if it wasn't for them, you would not even be able to write the poem. So that's the community we all rely on. Um, um, and, and their work is just as important as the people who help you to see your poem on the page, right? So there's, there's also the writing community, and I'm thinking about um, two people, uh, Jordan Abel, who I, I mentioned a couple of times in the work, and uh, Nobesi Philip. Uh, Jordan Abel, because he also has his... Um, a book that he has obsessed about, and I think all his work is a response to, and this is The Last of the Mohicans, right, by James Fenimore Cooper, right? So, uh, and, and we've had this conversation, me and him, right? So mine is The Heart of Darkness, and his is The Last of the Mohicans. Uh, but what I really am so keep being inspired by, uh, and, I will, and I say it in here too, how I learned that you can, you can have words on a page Okay, so conceptual poetry, right? So Jordan Abel is really good with conceptual poetry, right? You can have words on a page do a work beyond meaning, right? So in his book, Engines, he, he, he took the words from several uh, novels that had been written about uh, indigenous folks, I think 19th century novels, right? And he put them through some kind of system and he teased out some words and there you are looking at how white appears on the page in black text on a white page but white also as part of sentences that are talk to, talking about whiteness right and it's incredibly powerful to see how words can work on a page beyond trying to find meaning right and so he showed me the power of the language on the page, like the underside of it, right? And, and I thought, ah, this means I don't have to write meaningfully. I just can use poetry to showcase something that I want to showcase, right? And so, for instance, um, there's a page in this book where I have the pages from, uh, one page from Heart of Darkness, and I've taken all the words out except the word and and kept the punctuations, right? 
is it a poem? I don't know, but it's showing something. It's showing something. And I got, and that's the idea I get from someone like Jordan Abel and from um, Nobesi Philip. I, I got, she, she wrote a poem uh, way back when in a book called, um, She Tries Her Tongue and Her Silence Softly Breaks. And in that um, book, she's got a poem called The Discourses of Language in which she writes about what it is to not have a mother tongue, right? But to have a father tongue and the father tongue is English and it's a language that does not um, imagine her as, as well as it could have, as her mother tongue would have, but she lost her mother tongue uh, many generations ago because of the transatlantic slave trade, right? So what does it mean to work in a father tongue? And that is extremely powerful to me, uh, not because I'm claiming English as a father tongue, but just to think about, to not take language for granted. To think about the language that you use, not just as a tool, but as a way of, first of all, creating your own presence and showing your own work, right? Insisting on yourself and using English to speak other languages too. That I get from Gugiwa, you know, from Chinua Achebe, a Nigerian writer who said, yes, we will write in English, but if paraphrased, but we will do unnamed things with it. So I'm always thinking, ah, what unnamed things can I do with this language, right? And in poetry, I don't have to bend to anybody's rules. The page is my own, right? Yeah, so the writing community really helps me to, to think about the work that I do in ways that I could not have imagined myself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, my last question for you, uh, before we started, we were kind of talking about where where we are today, um, how, th you know, how hard things are for various mm -hmm. reasons. Um, but I wanted to end on talking about joy and and I know it's hard sometimes when our work wrestles with uh, issues of identity and um, colonization, but where do you find joy in your writing? Um, that's a hard question. That's also a really hard <laughs> I didn't mean to end question. with a hard question. <laughs> joy in my writing, there's such a thing. Um, <laughs> I don't know that the word is joy, but I can say that um, there's a sweet spot in writing when you no longer exist, right? And it's, it also happens when you're in music, when you're listening to something and it's so good that you're just part of it, right? Um, uh, what else? Also, when you're inside a story, say when you're inside um, a movie or a really good piece of fiction or something like that, and you lose your sense of yourself, sometimes that happens in writing. Uh, it's no longer work. It's just some, some you, it's like you're witnessing part, a magical something and, and you're there. And if you, if you say anything, it will break, right? I don't think that's joy, but that's uh, uh, a magic I find in writing. Um, Somebody once asked me to contribute to uh, uh, a gift of poems, uh, to write love poems for somebody who was ill. And I had not one single love poem that I could even think about that I'd written. And I thought, oh my God, I should start writing about happy things and things that 
give people joy, that sort of thing. And and I thought, no, that would, that would sound fake if I, yeah. So my, it's not a sense of joy, I would say. It's a sense of um, disappearing into the work. I love it. Yeah. I think it'll be called a runner's high. It was running. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. And there's like something unusual that happens too, where you like, you go back and you read something and you almost go, I didn't write that. Like that something happens where you were like, yeah. not even in your body and the words yeah. don't like, I don't think I wrote that, but who else yeah. could have done it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. But then if you were not open to being able to do it, it couldn't have been done, right? Yeah. And also if you didn't have the, and sometimes people will call it the privilege, but I'd say that if you didn't have a, a community and the system that allowed you to do the work or to go there, then it couldn't be done either, right? That was Atonia Akot Bitek. Atonia's book, A is for Acholi, won the 2023 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.